محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب الدين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, so Alhamdulillah, we have spent uh, six or seven lessons on the Battle of Badr and uh, we've discussed the Battle of Badr thoroughly. So now we're going to move on to what happens between Badr and Uhud. And uh, the first incident that, that uh, occurs or that is mentioned is a very interesting one and it's an aftermath of the Battle of Badr. It's something that's linked to the Battle of uh, Badr. And this is one of the most interesting assassination attempts upon the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now what happened was, as Ibn Hisham gives the whole story in detail, that after the battle of Badr, Safwan ibn Umayyah, pause here, pop quiz, who's Safwan ibn Umayyah? What's happened to him? His father and brother. He was the one who, when the messenger came back, or the first person to came back from Badr, Safwan said, this guy's gone crazy. How can anybody be killed? Go ask him, where's Safwan? And then he says, Safwan's sitting right there, and by Allah, I saw his father and his brother as they were dragged to his death. This is Safwan ibn Umayyah, right? Uh, the son of Umayyah ibn Khalaf. This is Safwan ibn Umayyah, the son of Umayyah ibn Khalaf, the owner of Bilal. So Safwan ibn Umayyah was sitting with his cousin, uh, Umayr ibn Wahab uh, al-Jumahi. And they were both reminiscing about the losses of the battle of uh, Badr. And uh, Umayr ibn Wahab, his son had just been taken prisoner of war. And his son was still in Medina as a POW. And he didn't have or he couldn't or he didn't want to, we don't know, pay the ransom. So his son is in Medina, the father is in uh, Mecca, and his cousin is uh, Safwan, the son of the famous Umayyah ibn Khalaf. And uh, Safwan began uh, ridiculing and criticizing and saying evil things about the Prophet wasallam and the problems that this new religion had caused. When Umair said, and he was of those who was of the most severe in hatred towards Islam, when Umair said by that, Wallahi, were it not for the fact that I owe so-and-so some money, and that I have a family to take care of, I would personally volunteer to go to Medina and execute the Prophet ﷺ myself. I'm willing to undertake this assassination attempt. For they have destroyed my family and my son is right now a prisoner with them. And uh, Umair therefore is volunteering but he's saying, I have a family and I have a debt to take care of. So Safwan took this golden opportunity. His father was Umayyah, a rich man. Safwan said, what if I take care of your debt and I promise to take care of your family to the extent that everything that I give my family, your family will get the same. Every gift I give my kids, your kids will get. Anything that's there, you, they will also get it. Will you then agree? And so Umair said, in that case, if you promise me this, then don't tell a single soul and keep this conversation between, between the two of us. And Umair immediately went back. He didn't tell his wife. He didn't tell his servant. He didn't tell anybody. He sharpened his sword and he poisoned it such that if the tip had just entered into anybody's body, it would have been enough poison to die. He saturated it with poison. And the Arabs had, and of course every civilization has techniques to put poison uh, on, their, uh, on their weapons. And he poisoned it, and he then left Mecca without telling a single soul where he's going. Complete secrecy. And he made his way alone 
to Medina. So he traveled for over uh, two weeks, almost two weeks he traveled. Because the average travel time is around 11-12 days and he's traveling by himself so it will be a little bit even more difficult. And he works his way all the way to Medina. And when he comes to the, the city, he disguises himself, you know, not disguise, but uh, when you were in the desert, it was common for the Bedouins or for the travelers to cover their hair. Not their hair, their face, excuse me. Right, because you don't want the sand to go in. So you will. You you must have seen pictures of how the people in the desert they cover their face up from their turban. So he's coming from the desert and he covers his face up in the manner of every traveler. This is what travelers do, and uh, his sword is hanging from his neck, as the travelers do, because the travelers they uh, they have their sword hanging from their neck, and he makes his way straight to the masjid, and Umar ibn al-Khattab recognizes him from the eyes. He recognizes him. Umar ibn al-Khattab recognizes him. And he said, هذا الكلب, this dog, he called him a dog. هذا عدو الله, this enemy of Allah. By Allah, he has come for some evil intent. He sees him from afar, he knows something is wrong. So he says, by Allah, this person has come for some evil uh, intent. And Umar immediately went to the Prophet ﷺ before uh, uh, Umair could find him and informed him that Ya Rasulullah Umair is here in the city he is looking for you Umair ibn Wahab is here in the city so the Prophet said bring him to me bring him to me he doesn't have to find me bring him to me so Umar ibn al-Khattab immediately took his own sword and went out to meet Umair because he doesn't know what Umair is up to and he told the Ansar to bring uh, the, the, uh, the personality of Umayyad, bring them into the masjid. And the Prophet ﷺ said, allow him to come in, but watch every move of his, because this khabith, this filthy person cannot be trusted. Umayyad was known from the days of Jahiliyyah for his evil nature. And even the fact that he's volunteering to assassinate, by the way. And by the way, his son is hostage right now. Can you imagine? He knows if he does what he does, what's going to happen to his son? It's understood. Right? He's willing to give this up as well. So he's basically willing to kill himself uh, because there is no way out for sure. And even his own son, as punishment, of course, that's going to happen uh, in order to kill the Prophet ﷺ. So Umair followed in with him. and uh, Sorry, Umar and Umair. They both came in together. And Umar had his hand right on the sword. Umar, waiting. If Umair does anything, I'm going to basically defend the Prophet ﷺ. When Umayr entered, he greeted the Prophet with their greeting, and that was In'am Sabaha. In'am Sabaha, which basically in English is good morning or have a pleasant day. I mean, this is the way that they would greet each other in Jahiliyyah. In'am Sabaha. So the Prophet said, Qad abdana Allah Ta'ala khayran min hadad. Allah Azza wa Jal has given us a tahiyya, a greeting khayran min hadha, tahiyyatu ahlil jannah. It is the greeting of the people of Jannah. It is the salam. So subhanAllah, even here the Prophet is giving him da'wah. Right? That we have a b- more beautiful greeting. What does in'am sabahan mean? As-salamu alaykum. I've given a whole khutbah about the etiquettes of salam and what is the meaning of salam and why we say salam. So uh, the Prophet said, Allah has given us a better greeting than this. And that is the greeting of Jannah and that is the greeting of salam. So Umayy said, that by Allah, Ya Muhammad, this is something new to me, meaning I've never heard of this, this is your business, I have my own ways of greeting. So the Prophet said, Ma ja'a bika ya Umair? Why have you come, O Umair? Why have you come? So Umair said, in order to negotiate the ransom of my son, he has an excuse ready. 
I've come to talk about the release of uh, my son and that you uh, send him back with me and be good with him. Until we negotiate, be good with him. So the Prophet said, if that is the case, what is this sword around your neck? If you've come to negotiate your son's ransom, why do you have a sword around your neck? That's not how a negotiator is going to come, armed. And so Umayr said that, uh, what is the point of this sword? This sword here, it's as if he never saw it. Like this sword here, what good did it do us at Badr? Meaning, what are you so worried about? We were armed to the hilt at Badr and we didn't, uh, we didn't win. So what are you worried about? What good did this sword do us at Badr? So the Prophet said, tell me the truth. Why did you come, O Umair? So he said, I have told you the reason for my son. Now the Prophet said, so Jibreel must have come to him. No, this is not the reason that you came. Rather, you and Safwan were sitting alone in the Hijr, right outside of the, the, the Kaaba, the Hijr. You and Safwan were sitting in the Hijr. And you mentioned your losses at Badr. And you said that were it not for your debt and your family, you would personally go and kill Muhammad wasallam. So Safwan offered to take care of your debts and your family so that you may come and kill me. But Allah Azza wa Jal has come between you and your plans. So he told him exactly why he was here. And Umayr realized that there was no way that the Prophet would have discovered this except if Allah told him. Because he's, he did not tell anybody. Not even his wife knows where he's going. He has himself traveled. Had any traveler been faster than him, he's going to catch up. You know who's going to be? The, the, the main road, which is the, the, the main highway, if you like. He's been taking it. He knows exactly who's traveling. There is no way that the Prophet would have known that Umair is coming for this deed unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him. So he immediately blurted out that Ashhadu annaka la Rasulullah. Now subhanAllah, I said this many times before that so many times we learn from the seerah that some of Islam's worst enemies were sincere in their animosity. Right? Some of Islam's most vile, despicable enemies, deep down inside, they really didn't know Islam to be true. By the way, some of them did. Abu Jahl is the classic example, right? Some of them did know Islam to be true. But there were many who did not know Islam to be true. And they opposed Islam, genuinely believing it to be a false religion. Now, I remind myself and all of you, that if this is the case with people who interacted directly with Rasulullah that sometimes it took a miracle as blatant as this one, like a slap on the face. Can't you still figure it out? Right? Then he realizes instantaneously. And this reminds me as well of the conversion of the magicians of Fir'aun. Right? That they are the worst of people, the magicians, the Sahara. When they see this miracle, it's simply too stupendous. Your eyes cannot... You know, explain them except by saying that this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now my point here is, what therefore should we make of our modern enemies? Of the leaders of the Islamophobia of this land? Of those who are smearing and, 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 and giving our religion such an evil reputation? I have no doubt that some of them deep down inside genuinely believe this crap or this filth, excuse me for saying this, but they genuinely believe what they're saying is true. Right? That they as well have been brainwashed as they are brainwashing others. You see my point here? Right? And therefore this 
causes us to pause as well in how we deal with them back. That sometimes, now of course we have to use our wisdom, sometimes harshness is good, and sometimes gentleness is also good. And I've said many times, general rule is that gentleness wins over harshness, right? And so here we have Umair literally flipping in 10 seconds, 5 seconds. That one, he, the, the, the sword is right here. He's literally waiting to come within stabbing distance. All he's waiting for, right? He's standing in front. Umar is there. He knows his life is over now if he really does this. He just wants to take the sword and prick. That's all he needs to do. And he's trying to get the conversation flowing. Can you imagine the amount of hatred and the amount of animosity? And then within five seconds, what happens? Ashhadu annaka la Rasulullah. That I testify you must be Rasulullah. Uh, and yeah, uh, we used to nukadibuka. We used to consider you to be a, a, a liar. We used to reject you when you told us that wahi would come from the skies. But this issue that you just told me, no one knew of it except me and Safwan. And there is no way you could have been found out or informed of it except from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so I thank Allah who has caused me to see the truth and guided me to Islam. Subhanallah. Literally, instant conversion. And now he is thankful that Allah has guided him to Islam rather than being killed, rather than losing his family, his son. Alhamdulillah, Allah has saved me spiritually and uh, physically. So the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, teach your brother about the religion and help him to memorize the Qur'an and go free his captive for him for free. It's his gift. Subhanallah. Look, يعني, you know, how one second he's doing this, the next second he gets every blessing imaginable. His son is given to him back for free. Go free his captive for him. Now that he's embraced Islam, go free his captive for him. We also see over here, by the way, the importance of the Quran. That literally the first advice he's given. Go teach him Islam. Go ask him to memorize the Quran. He needs to memorize certain, ahad, certain ayat, Fatiha, the, 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 the short surahs. And similarly, when a person converts to our faith, we should be yani, as strict as possible without turning him away. We should tell him, yes, you need to start praying and memorize the Qur'an, even if he has to read it from an English in the salah. We just had a convert last week. And uh, I told him, look, write the Fatiha in English. Write A-L-H-A, Alhamdulillah, and have it on a card. And when you're praying, pull it out and just read it like this. For him, it is allowed in this beginning stage. He's a new convert, can't even read anything. So the point is, look, the first commandment given, go teach him the religion and help him memorize some Qur'an and then go free his prisoner uh, for him. And this was the way of the Prophet ﷺ that anytime somebody converted, anytime somebody converted, he would assign a teacher to him. And this is a sunnah that sadly we have completely neglected. And wallahi, it's such a simple sunnah, such a simple sunnah, that when somebody new comes to the masjid, a new convert, the first thing we need to do, and I mentioned this when I talked about the mu'akha as well, if you remember, that we talked about the, 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 the pairing of the people, that this is a sunnah that we need to really revive. That we should have a list of brothers, a list of sisters. Every time a new convert comes, we pull this list out. Okay, next on the list, you adopt this person. And then you go teach him the Islam. And you're the foster family, right? You will invite him to your gatherings. So there's got to be a sense of community. And it's such a small thing to do. And it's so easy to do it. And inshallah ta'ala, I hope that we will be able to uh, uh, pursue this in a more professional manner here at MIC. And then inshallah, hopefully in other masajid as well. So he remained there for some time learning Islam. And then he decided he wanted to return. So he said that, Ya Rasulullah. Notice he used to call him, O Muhammad. Now we change, Ya Rasulullah, right? Ya Rasulullah. 
I used to strive my best to extinguish, extinguish the flame of Allah, torturing those who embraced Islam. So now I ask your permission to go back to Mecca and call them to Islam just like I used to prevent them from Islam. Let me make up for some of the harm that I've done, right? And I used to irritate you and the companions. Let me go back and defend you. So now he's feeling guilty. He wants to go back to Mecca to make up what he has done. Of course, he is one of the uh, big names of the Quraysh. So his life is definitely protected. He is a pure Qurashi. He's a pure-blooded Qurashi. He's one of the, the senior guys. And so there's no danger to his uh, personal life. So the Prophet told him to uh, go back. Now, nobody in Mecca knows what's going on. Safwan, after two weeks, began to, Safwan is of course his cousin, began to spread in Mecca that uh, just wait, some good news is going to come to you. Just wait. I can't tell you, there's a big surprise. Right? Just trust me on this one, that don't worry, better things happen, but I have a big surprise. Right? So he's building the uh, hype up, and then he finds out that Umair has accepted Islam. Soon as he finds out and he confirms it from Umair, he makes a vow, a vow to Allah, another to Allah, that he will never ever look at him, speak to him, be under the same roof as him. After they were blood cousins, they've grown up together, they have friendship together. Now he makes a promise to Allah that he's never going to have anything to do with his cousin. That's uh, Umair. And Umair did in fact return to Mecca. Uh, he began preaching Islam. And uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions that a number of people converted uh, to Islam at his hands. And this again shows us, here is the process for 13 years, right? But there's always a personal or family factor. That now, uh, when Umayyah converts, maybe another cousin of his, maybe another nephew, there's always something that comes closer to home. Not that he's preaching to new people, it's the same people. But again, this is the way Islam takes a while. It's not something easy. And this is one of the most naive assumptions that many, many of us have. I just talk five minutes and they're all going to convert. It doesn't work that way. A person has been raised in a certain philosophy, a certain way of life. Sometimes it takes decades for them to really think things through. right? And here we have the example of this. Now, by the way, just as a footnote to this story. So here we have these two cousins. Uh, and uh, eventually, Umair makes hijrah to Medina, uh, perhaps even before Uhud. We're not sure exactly when, perhaps even before Uhud. Uh, now, Umair then comes back to Mecca in the conquest, in the army of the conquest, in the eighth year of the hijrah. Right? Umair comes back as a Muslim. His cousin Safwan is obviously still a pagan in Mecca. And Safwan assumed that the Prophet would not forgive him. So he fled. By the way, the Safwan was not of the six whom the Prophet put on the list. But Safwan assumed he would be. Because he's the son of Umayyah. Because he has his own baggage and history. So Safwan fled. Umayyad enters. And Umayyad is searching, where's my cousin? Where's my cousin? He finally finds out. They haven't spoken since, since they plotted to assassinate. Right? Because he made the promise he's not going to speak. When they conquer Mecca, he's wanting to find his long lost cousin and friend. Where's Umayyad? Where's Safwan? He finally finds out Safwan has fled. Why? Because he's scared of the Prophet So Umair goes and says, O Messenger of Allah, please can I ask you to offer a special protection for Safwan. Special protection. Promise me that you will not harm him, then I'll go hunt him down. So the Prophet and he, whenever he was asked, he would never refuse, as you know. He would never refuse. So, And by the way, he wasn't even on the list anyway, on the initial list of the six. So he said, you have my protection. Given you, it's called, in Arabic, it's called Aman. Aman is protection. You have my Aman. So Umair went and found where is Safwan hiding and 
cajoled with him, convinced him, a little bit of back and forth, until finally Safwan decided to accept Islam. They came back and Safwan said the shahada in front of the Prophet Look at the amazing qadr of Allah, that these two cousins are plotting and planning to assassinate the Prophet The one converts early on, and this is a big blessing as we have mentioned many times, and the other one makes a promise never to speak. But the first one, Umayr, still has love for him. He still has the friends, the, 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 the bond, right? And he wants to help him out, despite all that's happened. And so he's the one who gets the aman, goes, finds his cousin, and convinces him. And then subhanAllah, the both of them, uh, the both of them, they embrace Islam uh, directly at the hands of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this is an interesting aftermath of Badr. There is yet another uh, story that is linked to Badr, but not directly related to it. And this is a very sensitive story. And it is a story of the Banu Qaynuqa. The Banu Qaynuqa. Now, before I begin this, we need to pause for a little bit of a uh, background and a disclaimer. With regards to the seerah, those who wish to criticize Islam, they try to criticize it based on a number of grounds. Firstly, the morality of the Prophet ﷺ. So they mention certain things about marriages, for example. They mention things about caravan raiding, and we explain caravan raiding. As for marriages, we'll talk about one by one. But these are things that uh, deal with personal morality, right? And one of the most sensitive things in that regard is, let's say, the story of Zainab. Let's say, there's one of those things that is used. We'll talk about that, Allahu alam, when and how. That's definitely a very difficult story to talk about. The satanic verse is another one. that We talked about that in a lot of detail. Now there's another angle or another tangent of criticism. And that is the political dealings of the prophets, not the personal conduct, politics. And when it comes to politics, the number one controversial matter is re with regards to how he treated the Yehudi tribes. This is the most sensitive and the most politically charged issue. And there are others as well, which we will come to one by one, the assassinations of Ka'b al-Ashraf and others. And these are things that are very sensitive, a political nature, especially in light of the modern times that we are living in. And therefore, this is a topic that requires thorough attention. It requires uh, sensitive, if you like, understanding of why this is problematic. And of course, one of the main reasons it's problematic is because the Prophet of Astaghfirullah, he's accused of anti-Semitism. He's accused of a mini Holocaust is a very common phrase that is used, right? Uh, again, in, in the aftermath of the, the, the Holocaust, which we're all opposed to and none of us defends that, that, that happened. But what happens is every single instance of, of uh, harming or, or killing a group of Jews, sometimes even if it's politically motivated, it is automatically linked to the Holocaust, right? So there's always this linkage that is difficult to... Uh, difficult for many to, to really explain out of and we need to defend the Prophet fairly and squarely what that means is we're not allowed to sugarcoat we're not allowed to invent astaghfirullah false ways to defend him we need to let the sources speak for themselves right and by now you know me that I'm not an apologetic by apologetic, what does apologetic mean? means somebody who's trying to apologize on behalf of the faith i.e. defend the faith no matter what Right? That he doesn't care how he does it. I am somebody who firmly believes the truth is always the best. Honesty is the best policy. And if our religion says something or does something, it's not my job to defend it. Allah Azza wa Jal has, has decreed it. It's not my job. 
You see my point here? That I firmly believe, like Abdul Muttalib said about uh, the Kaaba, that it's not my job to defend it. That's Allah's house, right? My job is to tell it like it is. So, we have to point out that this is a sensitive topic, that we need to be aware that this is politically charged in light of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, in light of uh, post-Holocaust uh, issues. And we also have to point out that, look, Anybody who has a disease in the heart will always be able to find something negative. In fact, you don't even have to have a disease in the heart. Sometimes it's just possible to see the glass half empty when it is clearly half full. Right? You just want to emphasize it is half empty. And you're not telling a lie. So there are always, I mean the classic case is the woman who complained about her husband. Do you know this hadith of the Prophet Classic case, right? The woman complained about her husband. That Ya Rasulullah, my husband sleeps fajr. Never praise Fajr on time. Ya Rasulullah, my husband does not allow me to fast. Ya Rasulullah, my husband beats me when I pray. SubhanAllah, that's like, what an evil husband, right? But the Prophet didn't uh, pronounce a judgment. He said, call your husband for me. And he asked each of these three questions. What is your uh, defense? And in the end, he actually agreed with every single defense. Now, of course, the point of the hadith is not what he said or what not. But the point is that he agreed that, okay, you know, you seem to have a point here. Uh, and so uh, basically, you know, the process ended up agreeing with him. Now, what the wife said was not a lie. Every point of hers was valid. But she put it in her context, and the process wanted to see his context. Right? So what I'm trying to say, if this is the case with regards to something so simple as a husband-wife dispute, what do you think about something so politically charged as a massacre, as an expulsion? Right? Because that's the point of each of the three tribes faced negative uh, consequences, uh, starting with the Banu Qaynuqa, uh, and then, of course, the other uh, Yahudi tribes. Now, again, before I begin, this is all prelude to the Banu Qaynuqa story. The claim that the Prophet was anti Semitic, or that Islam discriminated against uh, the Jews, or that the Prophet discriminated against the Jews, honestly, this claim is so uh, shallow that no serious person can say this. And all you need to do is look at Islamic history. All you need to do is look at Islamic history. That up until the creation of Israel in 1947, up until the creation of Israel, Israel, there were large pockets of Jews living in many Muslim lands in complete peace and harmony. The Jews of Iraq, the Jews of Tunisia, the Jews of Morocco, the Jews of Yemen. And it is true to say that every time the Jews were persecuted in Christian lands, every time they were expelled in Christian lands, they always found safe refuge in Muslim lands. This is historically absolutely true. From the time of the Umayyads, the Abbasids, up until the expulsion from Spain, how did Jews end up in Morocco? When they were expelled from Spain, they went to Morocco. Right? By the tens of thousands, shiploads, the Sultan literally sent his ships for them. Come, ta'al, we want you. There was no sense of animosity and hatred. And it is so true to say that almost all of the animosity and hatred now is because of the Palestinian Israeli conflict. That in pre Israel, before the creation of Israel, the Jews living in Muslim lands lived in harmony with their Muslim neighbors. And frankly, Muslims and Jews have more in common than Muslims and Christians and Jews and Christians. Muslims and Jews have more in common 
when it comes to how they interact and their laws and the sharia and the halakha halakha literally means sharia halakha means the way halakha means the path sharia means the path the yahud have a halakha the muslims have a sharia and it overlaps in 70% of its laws right so uh, all you need to look at historically is the most important jewish figures throughout islamic centuries have always been jews living in islamic lands right starting from in baghdad in the 7th century the greatest jewish thinker that had the most profound impact in medieval judaism his name was saadia gaon saadia gaon uh, in in baghdad he's one of the greatest thinkers he's a baghdadi he's writing in arabic he's born and raised in an arab environment and of course the single greatest thinker of uh, judaism without any uh, doubt the one greatest mind of judaism that all Jews look up to. Who is he? Spanish what? <laughs> Musa ibn Maymun, Moses Maimonides. They call him Rambam. Rambam is their title for him. Uh, like Shaykhul Islam or something. So uh, Moses Maimonides is the greatest Jewish mind ever. And to him they owe their creed, their most basic law books, their most important commentaries. It's literally one man. Moses, now this is a whole different tangent here. I don't even know if I should get into this now. But there is a recent book that came out and on Amazon. You'll find it by one of the leading uh, experts who actually claimed that Musa ibn Maymun or Moses Maimonides was a practicing Muslim, meaning he embraced Islam as a way of life. Why? Because in his youth, and this is true, he actually studied in the madrasas. And he studied as a Muslim, meaning he dressed like Muslims, he, he prayed with them, like, because that was how he grew up. Now, of course, ethnically, he's, he's Jewish, right? But he grew up in the Islamic environment of Andalusia. And the greatest universities were by Muslims, and the greatest libraries. So he basically entered the culture of Islam. And this is true. And that's why almost all of his books, his greatest books, are in Arabic. He's writing Jewish books in Arabic, by the way, right? And these had to be translated into uh, modern Hebrew. He didn't write it in, in, uh, uh, in any language other than Arabic. Why? Because again, this is the uh, lingua franca, this is the main language of the time. This is the most scientific, the most advanced. And he then uh, migrated to Egypt. And in Egypt, he became the personal uh, doctor. He was a doctor as well. In those days, philosophers, doctors, botanists, zoologists, they were all in one, basically. It was all one. Uh, he became the personal doctor to Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi. That because he was so, and so obviously in this position, his fame increased even more in Egypt, right? And he became the grand rabbi as well of Egypt. So this author theorized that in Andalusia, he remained a Muslim. When he came to Egypt, he then returned to Judaism. Now, whether he was actually a Muslim or not is besides the point. For sure, for a period of time, he lived as a Muslim. That is a historic fact, right? That he basically entered their culture for a period of time. Now, my point being, who can argue that Islam discriminated against Jews? Knowing some of these facts, and this is just the, 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 the tip of the iceberg, and of course, the most obvious point, how can Islam be anti-Semite when the Arabs are Semites? I mean, that's just, the term is meaningless, really. You know, the term is meaningless. You cannot be an anti-Semite if you are the children of Ibrahim, because the descendants of Ibrahim are uh, Semites. So the Arabs are Semites, and the Jews are Semites. It's not possible for an Arab to be anti-Semitic. An Arab can be anti-Jewish, yes, but he cannot be anti-Semitic. 
My point is that, and this is the main point that I will argue throughout every single incident, uh, that the Prophet ﷺ did not treat the Jews in any negative manner because they were Jews. Rather, he treated them the way he treated them because of what they did, not because of who they were. This is the main point. Yes, some very harsh treatments are going to come later on, not for the Banu Qaynuqa right now, but some very, there is indeed, yes, there is indeed a tribe that was put to the sword. But he did this because of what they did, not because of who they were, and there's a big difference between this point, right? You can be a criminal as a Muslim, you can be a criminal as a Jew, you can be a criminal as a Christian. To be punished as a Jewish criminal, you're being punished because of your crime, not because you're a Jew. To be punished as a Muslim criminal, you're being punished because you're a criminal, not because you're a Muslim. This is the argument that I will make and basically all of the scholars of uh, Sirah make as well. Uh, by the way, I have to point out one of the most interesting figures of Judaism who also had a lot to do with Islam. Uh, his name is Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi. Now Shabtai Tzvi, there was a large, this is in the 1500s, there was a large group of Jews, they thought he was Jesus Christ, he was the Messiah. They thought he was the Messiah. You know the Jews are waiting for the Messiah, the Messiah. Shabtai Tzvi was the largest movement, the Messianic movement ever in the history of Judaism, where tens of thousands of people, they considered this man to be the Messiah, and they followed him, and they basically took him as their uh, Messiah. What happened? Believe it or not, he actually converted to Islam. Towards the end of his life, he converted to Islam. And the Sultan of the Ottomans was so happy at this that he made him a vizier in the Ottoman Empire. He made him a vizier. So this caused a huge divide amongst his followers because we thought he's the Messiah, right? Now he's converting to Islam. What do we do now? Believe it or not, most of them rejected him, obviously. They're not going to go that far. A large group accepted Islam with him. And to this day, they are a group of Turkish Muslims that are called Donme, D-O-N-M-E, Donme, that go back to these Jewish uh, people who followed Shabtai Tzvi and then uh, basically converted to Islam. But by the way, their beliefs are a little bit in the middle. So, uh, I mean, I'm going into a tangent here, but it's interesting stuff here that they have slightly interesting beliefs, if you like. They're a firqa in Islam now. They're not pure Sunnis. They're a group within Islam. And they have some interesting beliefs. Anyway, I'm going to my time. Just get back to the topic. I don't know how I got it. Where was I? Banu Qaynuqa. Let's go back. Banu Qaynuqa. Tayyip. Banu Qaynuqa. The Banu Qaynuqa, according to Ibn uh, uh, Al-Waqidi, they were expelled on the 15th of Shawwal in the second year of the Hijrah. So how long after Badr? Quickly. One. One and a half years. 15th of Shawwal, second year of the Hijrah. One and a half month? Less than a month. When was Badr? 17th Ramadan. This is now 15th Shawwal. 15th Shawwal. So it's literally three and a half weeks. So this is very close to uh, Badr. Now, what happened? What is, what is the whole story of Banu Qaynuqa? Here's one of our problems. We don't have that much details of any of these three tribes. And that's where the main problem comes. Why is this the case? Because obviously, generally speaking, when you record history, generally speaking, if you want to talk about your father, your grandfather, you mention the good points in a lot of detail. 
And then you mentioned the downs just generically passing over. Because, not because you want to hide it, it's because human nature is this way. Suppose you want to have a history of your father or your grandfather. You talk about your father, he suffered some loss. And he goes, this was a difficult year for him. Let's move on now. Talk about the good times. Then he won this award and he met the president. And now you go into a lot of detail in the positives. Similarly, and when it comes to these types of stories, there was no need for the Muslims, the early Muslims to preserve the sordid details. The gruesome or the, or the, the you know, the, 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 all of these details, they just glossed over it. So we don't have that much. We literally, Ibn Ishaq literally has a page about the Banu Qaynu. Less than a page about the Banu Qaynuqa, right? Other early sources give us a few more stories. And this is really one of the problems that we have trying to reconstruct uh, what happened. Uh, Ibn Ishaq simply has a generic line that uh, the Banu Qaynuqa increased in their hostility against Islam. Something generic like this. What did they do? We really don't have that much detail, right? What we do have are two things that indicate much worse, that indicate what is inside. Two specific things. Ibn Ishaq mentions that after the Battle of Badr, after the Battle of Badr, the Banu Qaynuqa were saddened at the loss of the Quraysh and at the victory of the Muslims. This is really, clearly, they are not happy. Right? And so the Prophet went to their souq. The Banu Qaynuqa had the largest marketplace. Do you remember when the Prophet came to Medina and he said, The Banu Qaynuqa had a souq, you need your own souq. So he made his own souq, remember that? right? So the biggest souq up until this point in time was the Banu Qaynuqa. They had the largest souq. And people would come and they would buy and sell. Also, the Banu Qaynuqa were known for being goldsmiths. This was the tribe, the Yahudi tribe. They would buy and sell gold and they would fashion gold, they would hammer gold. They were goldsmiths. So he went to their souq and he gathered all of them together. So he's now speaking to the Banu Qaynuqa and he admonished them about this attitude and reminded them of their treaty. What treaty? What treaty? You protect us, we protect you. We're all going to be together against external enemies. Internally you decide your matters, we'll decide our matters. Remember the constitution of Medina, right? The Sahifa. He reminded them of the treaty. Like this is not a right attitude. At this, one of their leaders stood up and said, O Muhammad don't be fooled or deceived by your recent victory. Don't be fooled by your recent victory. You fought a bunch of nobodies. La dhikra lahum. There's no mention of them. Had you really been fighting men, men like us, you would have seen what the result would have been. Now that is blatant in your face. This is not like, you know, rumors or no. This is their lead, one of their leaders standing up straight to his face saying, don't, don't think yourself so big after Badr. Don't think that you're all mighty and powerful. No, you were fighting a bunch of losers. You haven't faced real men like us. Had you faced us, you would have seen what is fighting. Now that's quite clear. This is not a happy situation to be in. And the Banu Qaynuqa were at least 2,000 strong in terms of men, women, and children. 700 fighting men. So for every man, generally there's three or four uh, women and children. So at least 2,000, maybe 3,000. They have the, the Banu Qaynuqa were the largest of the three Jewish tribes, by the way. The Banu Qaynuqa were the largest tribe. And so blatant threat 
So the tension is simmering, increasing. There's one incident, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. One incident occurred that basically the fuse lit. What was that incident? It's rather crude and vulgar that one of the ladies of the Ansar went to, the, uh, to buy and sell some of her merchandise in the souq. She sold the merchandise, she has a lot of money, and naturally she wants to buy some gold. So she sat down in front of one of the goldsmiths, and she has now the money. And the goldsmith began flirting with her, to Ghaziluha, began flirting with her, asking her to expose some of her aura, some of herself. And of course she refused. So he made a motion to somebody behind, and that man came and did something, perhaps put a peg into her burqa or something, or perhaps tied it up, right? Such that when she stood up, her entire garments came down. And she was left there with nothing on. And she began screaming as the Yehud around her began laughing and making fun of her. And she called out for help. So one of the Muslims who was there went up with his sword and he chopped off the head of the one who had done this. He chopped off the head of the one who had done this in anger. Immediately, the, now this is their territory. This is not Medina. This is Banu Qaynuqa. Banu Qaynuqa are outside Medina. Like, a, you know, maybe 20 minute, 30 minute walk. Basically, you walk outside the city. Immediately, the Banu Qaynuqa surrounded him and killed him. So now his life is also gone. When the news reaches back to the Prophet wasallam, he sends them the message. The Sahifa has been broken. Khalas. There is no longer a treaty between the two of us. Why? Because the Prophet never, never surprised breaking a treaty. This is not allowed in Islam. You are not allowed to go against a treaty without telling them that, look, we have now broken the treaty. There is no treaty. So this is a warning, basically. And Allah says this in the Quran. In Surah, uh, this, the ayah had just come down in Badr, uh, in Surah Al-Anfal, verse 58. And I mentioned this in, in uh, yesterday or last uh, Wednesday's uh, if you fear treachery from a group of people then break the treaty on equal terms you cannot disobey the treaty what does break the treaty mean? you announce to them okay the treaty is no longer valid you cannot surprise attack because you have a treaty with them you have to tell them you guys have done something that no longer the treaty is valid it's not in effect anymore so he sent them the message that khalas, end. We no longer have this pact between us. Now, the Badu Qaynuqa, they really did not expect the Prophet to do anything. They did not expect him to do anything. Perhaps it was arrogance, perhaps it was confidence in their numbers, perhaps it was confidence in their fortresses. Now another point here, and the Quran mentions this many times for all of the tribes, uh, the Yehud had a different way of living and they did not teach this to the Arabs. The Arabs did not take it on. The Yehud, all of them, all of these three tribes and the tribes of Khaybar, by the way, all of them would live in massive fortresses. They had learned the mechanism or the art of building thick walls and layering it. And this is something they did not teach the Arabs or the Arabs did not learn from them. The Yehud tribes were living like this. And of course, Khaybar's fortresses were the biggest, by the way, and the most difficult. And we'll get to Khaybar when we get to it. But even the Banu Qaynuqa had their fortresses. Fortresses, multiple. So every 
large family would have its own, right? Every sub tribe would have its own, and they had dot, dotted their fortresses around uh, various uh, localities. So they thought, we have fortresses, we have so many men, what's going to happen? Yet the Prophet marched against them immediately. And when they heard he's coming, they ran into their fortresses and they locked themselves up. And the Muslims did not have the weapons or the mechanism or the catapults at this stage. Catapults would come in Hunayn, in Tabuk, way at the end. Right now they don't have anything. So they didn't have the mechanism to fight against fortresses. What did they do? You lay siege. Cut off supplies. And of course, they don't have an unlimited supply of water. This is not Mecca that there's Zamzam right there. They don't have unlimited supply. So after a while, they know it's going to run out. And so for half a month, the Prophet and the Muslims surrounded them. For half a month, they laid siege to uh, the tribes of the uh, Banu Qaynuqa until finally they decided there is no alternative. The water is going to run out. And so they surrendered. They surrendered. The uh, Prophet ordered that all of the men be gathered together and rounded up and tied up like prisoners of war and then decide what is to be done with them. Decide what is to be done with them. Uh, so when they are tied up, the Banu Qaynuqa in the days of Jahiliyyah had two main representatives or allies from Yathrib, from old Medina, from Yathrib. The first of them was their buddy Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul, the leader of the hypocrites, right? That they were very close with him. And the second of them was the Sahabi Ubada ibn al-Samit. Ubada ibn al-Samit. So they reached out for help to these two people. You two help us out now. You were our allies. You were our hulafa. You were the ones we interacted with from the Yathribites, from the Khazrajites. They were both Khazrajites. Uh, the Banu Qaynuqa and the Khazrajites had, an, if you remember from many months ago, the Banu Qaynuqa and the Khazraj had an alliance, right? And the Banu Nadir and the Auf had an alliance that we talked, Aus had an alliance that we talked about that long time ago. So the Banu Qaynuqa have strong alliances with the Khazraj and Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was from the Khazrajites and Ubadah ibn Samad was from the Khazrajites and they were both considered to be the representatives. As soon as they reached out, look at the reaction of the two of them. Ubadah ibn Samad went to the Prophet ﷺ. He didn't go to them. He went to the Prophet ﷺ. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, I want to tell you, I am no longer their halif. I'm resigning. He resigned to the process about this. That I, am no, I can no longer uh, support them. And that my wali is Allah and his messenger. Because the opposite is like wali. And I have, bari, I have cut off my ties from the Banu Qaynuqa. I have nothing to do with the Banu Qaynuqa. So he said, Allah wa rasulahu. That I will have my alliances with Allah and His Messenger. What's happening? Sides are being drawn. And he is saying, I can't be on the side of the Yahud. O Messenger of Allah, know that yes, that was my position. I've resigned from that position. I no longer have anything to do with the Banu Qaynuqa. And my ties are with Allah and His Messenger. Allah wa rasulahu. And I cut off my ties from these people. As for Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul, he marches straight to the Banu Qaynuqa's camp where they are now uh, prisoners and he demands the Muslims there to release them. Get rid of these chains. Well, not chains, but they were ropes. Get rid of these ropes. And the Muslim, you're going to listen to you or to the Prophet They say, no, we're not going to do this. He demands, do it or I will do it. 
and uh, the Sahabi in charge, his name was Al-Munzir ibn Qudama, he said, if you dare do it, I will kill you. You're not going to, you're not going to overcome or rescind the, the, the command of the Prophet ﷺ. If you do it, I will kill you. So he doesn't want to lose his life. And so he goes and finds the Prophet ﷺ wherever his camp is. Of course, this is all happening in Banu Qaynuqa's area. It's all happening outside of Medina. And he marches to the Prophet ﷺ. And he says, Ya Muhammad. He rarely called him Ya Rasulullah. Rarely. You find it once in a while in the seerah. He rarely calls him Ya Rasulullah. Even though Allah clearly says, do not call the messenger like you call one another. Don't call the messenger like you call each other. right? But he would do this because he's Abdullah ibn Ubay. You know who he is. Also, by the way, I need to point out, it's still early in the game. Abdullah ibn Ubay, still there's hope for him in the eyes of the Muslims, right? He's still not the leader of the Munafiqun so clearly as you will get to. Uhud was the real turning point as we'll get to. Uhud was when it was blatantly clear that these guys are just not Muslims. Right now there's still hope but it's, it's coming. You see the hatred is there. So he goes to the Prophet Ya Muhammad وسلم, Be generous with my Hulafa. Notice Ubadah says they are not my Hulafa have cut off from them after what they've done and uh, you are my wali O messenger of Allah and Ubadah is saying these are my hulafa these are my awliya be generous with them and the Prophet ﷺ was silent he didn't say anything so he repeated his request O Muhammad ﷺ, be generous with my hulafa and the Prophet ﷺ was silent and he began to turn away that he doesn't want to say anything unbelievably Abdullah ibn Ubay took the Prophet's armor by his hand and he shoved his hand into the armor to hold on to him. Can you imagine? Right? He put his hand into the armor and he held on to him. And he said, Be generous with my hulafa. And the Prophet said, Arsilni, let go of me. Don't hold on to me like this. And his anger began to show because he's now irritating him. Yani you're not the boss here. You're not the one who's going to decide what is to be done. right? And the Prophet Ibn Ishaq says that it was clear that the anger was visible now on his face. But he held on tighter. And he said, uh, no, I'm not going to let go. Can you imagine? The Prophet is saying, let go. He's saying, no. So he says for the third time, وَيْحَكْ arsilni, Woe to you, let go of me. And... He swears by Allah, Abdullah ibn Ubay, Wallahi, I will not let go of you until you promise that you're going to treat my hulafa in a generous manner. You will treat my allies well. These 700 men, now there were 700 men, 300 of them were armed and 400 were not armed. They protected me from the white and the black, al-ahmar wal-aswad, it means, this is an Arabic expression, they protected me from mankind. That the white people and the black people or the red people, they protected me from everybody. right? They protected me from everybody and now you think you will get rid of them in one day? So he is saying, they help me be who I am. Monetarily, financially, I had dealings with them. There's a lot of business money involved. These are my business partners, right? Abdullah ibn Ubay is a business partner with, with these people. For by Allah... I am scared of 
الدوائر what is a دوائر إني أخشى الدوائر a دوائر is like bad luck misfortune now they were good to me if you're bad to them I'm worried something bad will happen to me right so where is Allah Azzawajal? Where is trust in Allah? It's all it's just all pure jahiliyyah. You see his iman is non-existence, very weak. Inni akshad tawair. So when he's holding on so long, the Prophet said, Hum lak. I give them to you. Okay. Meaning, I promise to spare their lives. Now by the way, the Prophet had not threatened to kill them. He hadn't done any, he was just quiet. But Abdullah ibn Ubay was insisting that they be spared. Now, we don't know what was the intent of the Prophet ﷺ. Maybe he intended to spare them anyway. And so to just get rid of him, he said, I give them to you. Or maybe he hadn't made up his mind, he made up his mind now. Or maybe he changed his mind. We don't know. But in the end, he promised Abdullah ibn Ubay that they are yours, meaning they will spare their lives. And then the verdict came, you have three days, Banu Qaynuqa, to pack your stuff and leave. Get out of here. And whatever remains will be ours. You have three days. They begged and pleaded for more than three, and they were not given this. They went to Ubadah ibn Samit to try one more time, and Ubadah said, don't come to me, I wouldn't even have given you three days. You think I'm sympathetic to you? Don't come to me, I wouldn't even agree to the three days. Right? So Ubadah refused to help them out. In those three days, once again, Abdullah ibn Ubay attempted to convince the Prophet to get rid of the ban. At least let them remain then. Just forget about everything, let's move on. But he did not give him that. He did not give him uh, that. And uh, Abu, Ubay, uh, that, uh, uh, Abu Ubaidah was the one who himself, he, uh, sorry, not Abu Ubaidah. Ubaidah ibn Samit was the one who took charge of making sure that after three days they had indeed left. Now obviously when they left, they left a lot of property, a lot of wealth, a lot of they, they took the gold obviously but they couldn't take the belongings they couldn't take the houses they couldn't take the possessions they couldn't take many of their other uh, the, the armors that they had because they literally had to choose what they're going to take right and so they took what would they consider the most essential and they left a lot of wealth and of course this wealth indeed came to the Muslims so you understand uh, for those whose hearts is a disease you can easily interpret this in, in its own way and for those who see things as they are they messed up, they threatened, they shouldn't have done that. And they are definitely a potential uh, danger and threat to the Muslims. In such a delicate situation, go live somewhere else. If you have that much hatred, then go find another place to uh, live. And at this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah Al-Ma'idah verses 51 to 56. Surah Al-Ma'idah verses 51 to 56, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, ya amanu, la yahuda nasara awliya. Do not take the Yahud and the Nasara as awliya. Now this is a very sensitive ayah which is used by Islamophobes again, but wallahi, once you understand the context, everything that's, in, that's dangerous about it drops away, right? Allah is saying in such circumstances, don't take Yahud and Nasara as awliya. What is awliya? Protectors. People whom you turn to as your ultimate source of protection. The two of them will help one another against you. And whoever chooses them as a protector, then indeed he is one of them. And Allah does not guide the wrongdoing people. This is Abdullah ibn Ubay. You will see those in whose hearts there is a disease. They are 
running through them, saying, Nakhsha and Tusibana Da'ira. Allah is quoting Abdullah ibn Ubay here. We are worried about bad luck. So this is a quotation directly from Abdullah ibn Ubay, because that's exactly what he said. That I, I fear that I'm gonna get bad luck if I mistreat them, right? So Allah Azza wa then says, But it is possible that Allah will give, instead of bad luck, Allah will give you victory. And Allah will give you uh, a decision coming from Him. And then they, meaning the hypocrites, will become regretful about what they say. And then Allah uh, keeps on, you should read these sections 51 to 56. Allah Azza wa also praises Ubadah ibn Samit. He praises Ubadah ibn Samit. Your true awliya are Allah and His Messenger and the believers. This is what Ubadah ibn Samit said. He said this that I choose Allah and His Messenger and the believers. So Allah Azza wa Jal then said, Whoever chooses Allah and His Messenger, that. Uh, these are the ones who are going to be Hizballahi uh, al Muflihun, that the uh, the party of Allah they will be successful. So these series of verses, Ma'idah fifty one to fifty six, uh, deals with the expulsion of the Banu Qaynuqa, and uh, with this we conclude with a few benefits. What are some of the benefits of uh, the expulsion of the Banu Qaynuqa of this incident? And then inshallah have some time for Q and A. The Banu Qaynuqa were the largest of the three tribes. And they were the first tribe to be dealt with. They were the first tribe to be dealt with. And it was the least harsh of the three. Because the second one after uh, Uhud will be even harsher. And then the one after Ahzab is the harshest because that was execution. Right? Now, if you think about it, it makes complete sense to go gradual. That look, O second Yehudi tribe, you've already seen what happened to the first one. How could you fall into it again? So, a little bit harsher. And then the third one goes even the worst, and that's open treachery, as we'll come to, right? They've already seen what happened to tribe number one and tribe number two, yet they still have the audacity to attack Allah and His Messenger, so the punishment is the most harsh, right? So, in fact, again, there's very clear over here uh, with this regard. Uh, also of the benefits that we gain over here is the proper understanding of uh, that verse in the Quran O oh, you who believe do not take the Jews and Christians as awliya uh, there's a huge mistranslation do not take the Jews and Christians as friends this is there's not awliya does not mean friends right and some of the translators who didn't know English well they, 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 they took this translation and you find it still in, to this day do not take them as friends and then you find the Islamophobes look the Quran says a Muslim can never be a friend of a Jew or a Christian no it doesn't Look at the context of revelation. Look at understand what's happening, right? These are people who have mocked Allah and His Messenger. So Allah is saying, don't take these types of people as your awliya. Don't go to them just like Abdullah ibn Ubay said. In this type of situation, you have to choose sides. When the Prophet is on one side, and you have the other group on the other side, no doubt you choose the Prophet and whoever chooses the other side, you are not with Allah and His Messenger. We also see over here the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ in dealing with the crudeness of Abdullah ibn Ubay that despite the fact that he treated him in such a harsh manner that we would not expect any Muslim to treat him with, the Prophet ﷺ did not lift a finger against him. And this proves us what Aisha used to say that wallahi, the Prophet 
never took revenge for something personal ever. He never took revenge for himself ever. If he ever took revenge, it was for Islam and for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Here is Abdullah ibn Ubay being rude to him and doing to him what none of the Sahaba would dare do. And yet he didn't touch, lay a finger on him. And in fact, he actually gave him what he requested. Now here is where we don't know. Did he change his mind for Abdullah ibn Ubay? Or was this in his intention anyway? And eventually, he just said it to appease him. Allah knows, we don't know. Because again, we don't know what was in his mind. The judgment against the Banu Qaynuqa had not been made. And Abdullah ibn Ubay demanded it right then and there. right? So after three, four attempts, he said, Humlak, I give them to you. Maybe he had intended to do this anyway. And so, he's appeasing him. Or maybe he genuinely changed his mind. Whatever the case might be, there is clear wisdom in granting Abdullah ibn Ubay publicly what he wants. Why? Because still Abdullah ibn Ubay, there is hope for him. This is still early. This is still the second year of, of the hijrah, right? Barely a year and three months since he has come. Abdullah ibn Ubay is the senior most figure before Islam, right? There are still many Ansar who still look up to him even if they're Muslims, but he was their leader. And so there is wisdom in conceding some things to him. So even if somebody argues the Prophet changed his mind, okay, still there's wisdom. That here is a man where you don't want to form an enemy for no reason. And he has a lot of followers underneath him. And therefore he uh, placated him. He basically and he gave him what he wanted in order that he minimized the damage. And this shows us that, again, we always look at minimizing the harm and minimizing uh, the damage. We also see over here of the benefits of this uh, incident is that the true colors of the munafiqun are showing now that slowly we see who these people are. Still, they're not called munafiqun, by the way. Yes, nifaq began after Badr, but it was manifested at Uhud. It began after Badr, but nifaq was crystal clear at Uhud when they turned around and they wouldn't fight as we're going to come to inshallah in 2-3 weeks right? so Nifaq is still beginning and Abdullah ibn Ubay is showing what is the reality of Nifaq the lines are being drawn and the believer in such a case he must choose the side of Allah Azza wa Jal and his uh, messenger and inshallah in next Wednesday's uh, lesson we'll talk about uh, two or three incidents that took place before the battle of Uhud, uh, the battle of Sawiq and the battle of Qarqarat uh, al-Qudr and other battles that took place that are setting the stage for the battle of Uhud and then inshallah three weeks from now we will do the battle of Uhud, we'll begin the the, the uh, uh, incidents that led up to it the, the setting up of the stage, then we will take a two week break for the Christmas holiday uh, so we'll take the last week of uh, the last two for Wednesdays off, we'll take and then inshallah begin uh, in January inshallah ta'ala so we have two more lessons after this week correct one more lesson oh yes one more you're right one more lesson that's right yes after this week we have two no two more lessons two more lessons yes no no so let me 12 and 19 right yeah so then in that case I will not be here uh, on the 19th. Yes, I will not be here. So we have one more week. So that's actually perfect because I didn't want to start Uhud. I didn't want to start Uhud. So we'll do it on the 12th and then we'll take two weeks off and then inshallah come back uh, on the 2nd 
of January. You're not going to be here? People are off? That's the week everybody's off? But most of you who take notes, when I ask questions, you have no idea what the answer is. So, and usually those who are not taking notes answer the questions before those who are taking notes. So, <laughs> inshallah, we will see. I mean, I will be back by the second. But if there's a lot of you that are not here, then inshallah, we can start on the ninth. It's the same to me. But so inshallah, that's perfect. It works out perfectly. Next Wednesday. Uh, we'll finish up everything before Uhud because I did not want to start Uhud. It will really be awkward. So then as soon as we begin again, then we will begin uh, on a clean slate with the battle of Uhud. The battle of Uhud will take much longer than Badr. If you thought Badr was long, Uhud uh, has a lot more uh, details to it. Inshallah, we have a few minutes for questions. And yes, Bismillah. Where was Umar when we needed him? <laughs> <laughs> so the books of Sirah do not mention where they were Were they there or not we do not know No details are mentioned Nothing is mentioned So there's one of two explanations The first of them is that they were not there But I find this difficult to believe Because somebody would have been there He's not alone and the second, and this is my own, well, the exact same questions came to me when I'm thinking about these things. And this is hypotheses. Because again, and I say this a million times, when you record an incident, you can only record a bit of it. You're not going to take the whole, it's not a video camera doing the whole 3D image, you know what I'm saying? So, the other alternative, which makes a lot of sense, is even they themselves were confused what to do when somebody as senior as Abdullah ibn Ubay who was their king almost, or their chieftain, that now he is having a word of wars. It's not, I mean, he's not physically going to take his sword out, you know, but he's being crude. He's being crude. I mean, it's understood he's holding the armor. He's not going to be physical. He's just being vulgar. You know what I'm saying? That's like, there's a difference between crudeness and between physical danger. And Abdullah ibn Ubay was being very uh, rude and very harsh. So, Perhaps they themselves did not know what is to be done because maybe by them intervening, it would have made the situation worse. Because if the Prophet does something, he is Rasulullah. If Abu Bakr and Umar do it to him, it might have made it worse to the followers. This is my own interpretation and Allah knows best. right? And obviously they're waiting for him to tell. If they're, if they're around him, he can tell them, do something, and they would have done it. So this is what makes sense to me and Allah knows best. Yes, our young brother in the back, go ahead. MashaAllah, good question, not relevant to the topic, but no problem. Uh, you're talking to him about dreams these days? <laughs> uh, must be dreaming a lot. I hope you didn't dream right now. In the, we don't want you to dreaming right now when we're talking about this. Uh, dreams, you didn't listen to Tafsir Surah Yusuf. I talked about dreams, 45 minutes uh, less than about dreams. Dreams, a lot of times come from your own imagination. So it's what you are imagining and you think about them. Sometimes they come from Allah and sometimes nightmares, uh, they come from shaitan. But generally speaking, dreams are your own internal imagination. So what you think about, you will dream. Questions, other questions before we break for salah? Yes. 
Wallahi, I don't know if we can generalize like this. It's not appropriate for us to do this. There's always good and bad. And I, I don't think it is useful for us to... In fact, it's not useful for us to stereotype and stigmatize. This is harmful to us in the long run. There's no doubt there's a lot of political problems happening right now. We're very, very angry and hurt about what uh, uh, Israel is doing. And being anti-Israeli doesn't, should not make us anti-Semitic. This is something that I have to be very clear about, right? And I think, unfortunately, many of us, the line has become blurred. And this is, frankly, I myself was guilty of this 10, 15 years ago, that you really cannot distinguish between criticizing Israel and between criticizing Jews. And a lot of times, for many of us Muslims, when we see how blatantly vicious Israel is, that we lose sympathy for all of them. Them meaning the Jews. And the fact of the matter is that there are many who are opposed to Israel. There are many. And Alhamdulillah, I'll tell you good news that even within the Jewish community, the voices of opposition are getting louder and louder and louder. And once upon a time, APAC was unchallenged. Now the biggest voices of challenge are from within the Jewish community. And there's a new organization called J Street. Maybe you've heard of this. You know, which is now the second largest lobbying group after APAC. It's called J Street. Google it, J Street. And J Street is basically a group of Jews who are arguing for uh, humane treatment of the Palestinians, who are arguing against the brutal uh, brutalization of the Palestinians by uh, the Israelis. And uh, on my Facebook page, I posted a video of a very famous uh, general of the Israel army, his son. One of the generals who was with the IDF back in the 50s and the 60s, who was with um, uh, Moshe, Moshe Dayan. He was under Moshe Dayan, right? His son gave a very beautiful lecture about how going to Israel, he's an American now, going to Israel made him change his whole mind about what is Israel and what is Palestine. So my point being, well, it's so easy for us to just go into this, but it's, it's, it's something that our religion has told us not to do, and it's also something that will cause us more harm than good. Not every one of them is bad. There are many who are good. By the way, this is not even, we're not even talking about those, there's a group of Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, they are so much opposed to Zionism that they think Zionism is the cancer that will kill Judaism. Right? And uh, they're called the Natura Karai. Who can? The Naturi Kara. The Naturi Karta. The Naturi Karta. Uh, now, this is a group of ultra Orthodox Jews who, wallahi, they view us as they're literally their cousins. And I have met them. They come to Isna, they come to these conferences, right? They're so kind and gentle to us. And as to the Zionists, they say we have nothing to do with them. That they believe Zionism is the ultimate cause of every curse that the Jews are getting is because of Zionism. This is the exact opposite side, right? So my point being, we have to be very careful, my dear brother, of uh, stereotyping and realize that this is not appropriate for us to do. And it's something that will cause us harm in the short run and in the long run. And it's something that our religion does not even tell us to do. I hope that answers your question. Allah knows best.
anything it's yeah and and honestly i mean subhanallah many most of you are older than me wallahi in my own lifetime i'm seeing the support of palestine growing exponentially in the last 15 20 years right and I know that in the 60s and 70s, you could not hear any voice of support. I know this from studies. I wasn't there. You guys were here. You tell me this, right? Here in the Western world, who would be supporting the Palestinians? In the 60s? Nobody. Now, alhamdulillah, things are changing, right? And it's only a matter of time before, you know, the truth is clear from falsehood. So, inshallah, inshallah, I hope that some solution that is peaceful inshallah I hope it's close and Allah knows best question from the sisters before we break for salah any question going once going twice brothers yes go ahead that's nothing to do with awliya So, this is a very long topic. Wallahi, it's um, not easy for me to answer in one minute. Because this is what Islamophobes use uh, against us as well. And they say that uh, this is a verse that justifies taqiyya. This is a verse that justifies taqiyya. Illa But the ahadith and the seerah of the Prophet has shown what does this mean. Illa does not justify lying. The Sharia has never allowed lying. Nor does it justify breaking the ties. Rather, it means a sweet talk that will minimize harm, that will not bring about animosity, even though you don't, you're not, you're not genuinely sweet in your heart to them, but you placate them, you calm them down. So, if there is a megalomaniac, you know, leader somewhere in the world. And in order to calm him down, you just praise him a little bit. You just, you know, calm him down. This is diplomacy. This is common sense. This is what it means. It doesn't mean that you write a treaty and you negotiate and then you actually are going to break that. This is something by unanimous consensus of all the scholars of Islam, it is not allowed. It doesn't mean that you promise one thing and then you, you do another. means sweet talking to a despotic or a tyrannical person, knowing that you don't mean this sweet talk, but you don't want a war. You don't want a civil problem. You don't want a, uh, you know, two armies fighting. So the, the uh, Prophet ﷺ demonstrated this in the hadith in Bukhari, when one of the munafiqun, one of the evil people came to him, and uh, he smiled in his face and was nice to him. right? And then he left. And this is one of the, the tribal leaders of the Bedouins who was a hypocrite, a munafiq. And the Prophet said, Bi'sa akhul ashira. Bi'sa akhul ashira. Like, uh, what an evil man he is. And Aisha said, Ya Rasulullah, you were just smiling and laughing with him. You were just smiling and laughing with him, right? Uh, how can he be evil? And why would you do this? So he said, Hadith is in Bukhari. He said, O oh, Aisha, have you ever known me to be? Fahish to be crude 
Meaning, do you want me to curse him? Like you understand, like have you ever known me to be like this? That have you ever seen me to be vulgar? What did you want me to do? This is the leader of the hypocrites of this tribe coming. And so I was polite to him. Verily, the worst people in the eyes of Allah are those whom the people are forced to smile at even as their hearts curse. This is illa It's common sense. It's diplomacy, right? That here's a person, you hate his guts because he's going to stab you in the back. But you don't want him to do that. So you're polite to him. You just give him shy, give him some qahwa, give him some dates, right? You don't want to be hospitable to him. But he is somebody who's going to cause harm to you. So this is, now nowhere does it say you're going to sign the treaty and then you're going to stab him in the back. Here we have the Banu Qaynuqa. When they broke the treaty, what did the Prophet do? Did he surprise them? No. He sent them the message. Look, the treaty that we had, khalas, end. You have to do that. Never, Allah Azza wa Jal says uh, clearly that uh, if they do khiyana to you, then don't worry, Allah will give you power over them. Allah did not say you do khiyana with them. Right? That you are not, khiyana means treachery. If they are treacherous to you, you're not allowed to be treacherous back to them. This is clear in the Quran. Treachery is never allowed. Never. So, illa an min does not mean what these guys understand as taqiyya. That's not Sunni Islam. You know this. Taqiyya is not a part of our tradition. It's another tradition of Islam. Wallahi, I don't know this to be honest. I, I did not hear this personally. I live there. But even if it was, then we don't take... Yani, if, if that's their interpretation, that's their interpretation. Allahu A'lam. InshaAllah. Final question that we'll break. After the... So the sh- that's that's a revenge because they challenged the Quran. In Hada illa Satirul Awaleen. They said that Ma'anzarallahu min shay'. They said that we can do better than this. It's it's a revenge for the sake of Islam. And our Prophet is the personality of Islam. So if somebody insulted him and the Qur'an and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as another al Harith did, then yes, that is going to be the punishment. But here we have Abdullah ibn Ubay being crude just to him as a person and a leader and not as Rasulullah. So he did not take any revenge. I think that's very clear. I mean, he did not take any revenge because this is a person. The Bedouin comes and he... Uh, literally drags his shirt off and he says, Ya Muhammad, right? So he is being, and, he, and uh, Abu Huraira said, We could see the burn mark. You know, when you burn a cloth, when you uh, take a cloth quickly or, you know, paper cut or whatever, we could see the burn mark on his chest. And the Prophet did not do anything more than smile, tabassam, and he goes, Give him some money from the ghanima. Go give him some money. This is a personal uh, thing. That the man is greedy, he's a Bedouin, and he goes and he, you know, takes the shirt off and he goes, right? So he smiles, he goes, give him. So this is personal stuff. But to make fun of him as Rasulullah, this is not personal anymore. 
to ridicule the Quran, to say we can do better than this, to say in Hada illa to say Ma Allahu min shay. This is this is beyond personal. Inshallah. Inshallah with this we conclude.